Bow your hearts with me. We'll begin with prayer. Gracious Lord, what an opportunity to be with your people and to worship Christ. We thank you that we are saved by the blood of Christ. We are redeemed. We are brought into a family, into the church. And we thank you that your word instructs us and tells us exactly what we ought to do and how we ought to live. And this morning as we come to the subject of missions and evangelism, I do ask you that you would bring clarity to this subject. I do ask you that you would open your word to us and by your spirit open our minds to understand. And most importantly that we would not just understand what the verse says, but that each one of us would find our place in this great commission of going and sharing the gospel with others. I do ask you that you would give me grace to open this passage. And I do pray for the work of the Spirit in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Acts chapter 1. And this morning I want to bring you a message entitled, Worship in Missions. We're continuing our series where we're dealing with God's purposes for the church. We go to the book of Acts because this is where it all started. Luke writes the second volume of his book where he's writing to Theophilus. And this is where he writes and tells us how the church started and what the church was doing. In his first chapter... He records the final words of Jesus. Final words are very important, especially if you know that they're the last ones you're going to say. We know from verse 3 that Jesus appeared to his disciples for a period of 40 days after his resurrection. And we're told that he was teaching them things concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus was preparing his disciples for the work that lay ahead of them. The disciples are not going to see Jesus until glory. And so before Jesus ascends to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, he has this period of time to teach them and to instruct them and give them his final marching orders. Now the words that Jesus gives to the disciples, they were not only relevant for them and at that time, but as you will see from this sermon and from our time in the Word today, that they are relevant to every single one of us here this morning. In one verse, Jesus spells out the marching order for every single person in this room. In one verse, in verse 8 that we're going to be looking at this morning, we have an outline of the book of Acts. Where Jesus says, this is what's going to happen and we'll trace it through the book of Acts, and this is exactly what happened as the church started in Acts chapter 2 and expanded to the ends of the world by Acts chapter 28. Because we're dealing with a topical sermon, we will read a lot of scripture this morning. Primarily we'll be in the book of Acts, but there will be a few places that we'll go elsewhere. We will focus on verse 8, and in order to unpack this verse, we will consider four things. But before we get there, we can say that the purpose of the church can be summarized in one word. And the word is worship. Worship. We exist for worship. 
What is worship? We can say that worship is a response of the heart to who God is and what God does that is expressed in adoration and action. I want to submit to you that as a church, we worship God primarily by two things. Number one is by edifying believers. And number two is by evangelizing unbelievers. For the last couple of weeks, Jan was dealing with this first part when we're talking about the church and edification of believers. This morning, my task is to address the second part, evangelizing unbelievers. Now, we have to admit that when it comes to evangelism and missions, there is much confusion in the church. I think it's safe to say that in most churches, evangelism and mission is reserved for a small group of people who are part of this organized program in the church while the rest of us just come on Sunday and we worship Jesus and sing songs. But the question that we're asking this morning, is that what Jesus intended for his church? Now to answer that question, we'll unpack this verse. And I want to give you a four-point outline that we'll follow this morning. First, we will focus on the people of missions. And here we're asking the question, who is supposed to do it? Second, we will define the purpose of missions. And here we're asking the question, what are we supposed to do? Third, we will see the power for mission. And here we're answering the question, how are we supposed to do it? And finally, we will outline the plan for missions. And that question is, where are we supposed to do it? Now join me as I read Acts chapter 1, first eight verses. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard off from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority, by his own authority. And this is our verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. We begin with the people of mission. Now, the first question we want to answer is this. Who is supposed to be involved in missions? Now, when I use missions in title of my main points, I'm referring both to local evangelism and global outreach. Both of these could be included in this term. Now, in order for us to answer this question, who is supposed to be involved in missions, we have to look at verse 8, and we have to figure out who is you in this verse. If you look at the verse, it says here, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you shall be my witnesses. So who is you in this verse? Once we answer that question, we have to answer the second question. Is if this you is limited to the people who were addressed at that time, or does it relate to more people than just those addressed in this verse? So in order to answer that question, we have to walk back through the context and see who Jesus is talking to. So if you look at verse 7, for example, he said to them. Well, who's them? Go back to verse 6. So when they, they had come together, okay, they, that doesn't help us. Verse 4, gathering them together, again, we have them, they, them. Go to verse 3. To these he presented, well, who's these? Go to verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to who? To the apostles whom he had chosen. So these, them, they all refer to the 11 apostles. We know Judas is dead by this time. And we have 11 apostles. And Jesus is specifically addressing them in this verse. Now the question we have to ask next is, is this verse or is this mission that he outlines for them, is it restricted to these 11? And why is it important to ask that? It's important to ask that because many feel in the church or at least act in the church as if this verse doesn't apply to them. As if they are not part of this mission. As if God has chosen these select few gifted spiritual individuals and he assigned certain things to them and I'm just this poor little fellow who just sits in the back, sings songs, and it's not for me. That's why it's important to answer this question, does this encompass more people than just the 11 disciples or 11 apostles or later on we can say just the preachers or just the elders or just the deacons? So we see clearly that you in this verse is addressed to the apostles. But if we consider for a moment, just before we get to the second question, who these apostles were. Now we have the rest of the book of Acts. And we have the rest of the New Testament. And so we know what the apostles have accomplished. But if you are just had the Gospels, and you know everything you know about the apostles just from the Gospels, and you come to this point, you realize that this is an impossible mission. Jesus is talking to 11 guys. 11 guys who were not the sharpest tools in the shed, if you will. Throughout the gospel, you look at them, you look at the things that they said, you look at the things that they did. These are just a bunch of nobodies, fishermen in Galilee. They're not from the elites. And here they are in Jerusalem, and Jesus is telling them, you are going to turn the world upside down. Now, I find this to be very encouraging. Have you ever felt like, I'm just nobody? insignificant. I'm not this great guy who doesn't have these great abilities or great influence or great power. Well, welcome to the kingdom. Jesus is in the business of using nobodies to accomplish his will so that he can get all the glory. That's why we see here these 11 guys and these 11 guys will turn the world upside down, not because they're so great, but because Jesus is with them. Now, it is amazing, as you read the book of Acts, how confused people were when they actually saw apostles doing what they're doing. For example, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, 
It says, now they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. The only distinctive about them was that they hung out with Jesus. They were uneducated, they were untrained, they were not influential, and yet what they were able to do, people looked at them and says, hey, these guys have been with Jesus. They have been trained by the greatest teacher for three and a half years. And then 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus trained them and Jesus gave them the education that they needed to influence the world. Now we ask the second question. Was it only the 11 who were supposed to accomplish this mission? And if we read the book of Acts, the resounding answer to this question is no. The command is given to 11 because the 11 were representatives of the church. That's why the command is given to them, but it is not restricted to them. If you look at chapter 2, the verse that we read, and we'll start reading a bunch of verses. Look at Acts chapter, chapter 2, verse 4. It says here, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Who is they all? They all is 120 people who are gathered in that room. If you look at chapter 1, verse 15, there is 120 of them. And when they all were filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told that they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. This was not just the 11 and the rest of the guys were just watching in the background. No, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and all of them be began to speak and preach the good news. Fast forward to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to Stephen. Stephen was not one of the 11. But Stephen was such a powerful preacher that in verse 10, we're told that they were unable to cope with the wisdom and with the spirit that he was speaking, with which he was speaking. He's not one of the 11, and yet he's doing what Acts chapter 1 verse 8 predicted. Fast forward to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're told that there is a great persecution, to which we'll come back a little bit later on. But we're told in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, on that day, there, there, that day great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout regions of Judea and Samaria. And notice the last phrase, except the apostles. Up until chapter 8, we have Jewish church centered in Jerusalem. Persecution comes and everyone goes. Everyone but the apostles. Who were told in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 that they are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why in verse 8, 4 we're told that therefore those who had been scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. It was a bunch of people from the church that went and started preaching. Go to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, we're introduced to one of the most influential churches in the New Testament. The church in Antioch. Do you know who started church in Antioch? Listen to Acts chapter 11 verse 19. Or look at your Bibles. It says, so then those who were scattered. Those who were scattered is everyone besides the apostles. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch. 
And began speaking to Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and the large number who believed turned to the Lord. Who started the church? Some nameless guys. It's just some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. They went, started the preaching in church, and this was the church where the Christians were first called Christians. This was the church that sent out the first missionaries who went to the ends of the known world at that time. This was that church. And who started it? bunch of guys from the church who just went and preached the gospel. So answering the second question, is this mission restricted to the 11 apostles or restricted to elders or pastors? The answer is no. We see clearly from the verses that we just read that the Spirit of God used the people of God who proclaimed the Word of God to save people. All of the people were involved in missions, not just select few. So who are the people of the missions? We are. We are. It's not them over there. It's not some of us. It's all of us. Let's look secondly at the purpose of missions. And here we're asking the second question. And we're saying, if we are all called to missions, what are we supposed to do? By the way, let me clarify something. When I say missions... I am not saying that all of us need to get up and go somewhere across the world. In fact, most of us will never go anywhere. Most of us will stay here. There might be few of us that will go somewhere. You read the book of Acts, and I can name missionaries on my one hand. There were only few missionaries. The rest of the people stayed in their places and preached the gospel where they were. So most of us will never go anywhere, but that does not mean that you're not involved in this mission. Now, the purpose of mission from this verse can be outlined in one simple phrase. What is the purpose? The purpose is here. You shall be my witnesses. That is the purpose of missions. Jesus says here, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. Now, what is a witness? Witness is someone who has seen and can tell to others what he has seen, heard. He can tell others about a person or event or a circumstance that he has witnessed. You've seen something. And in order for you to be a witness, you simply say, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what I know about the circumstance or about this person or about this event. Jesus says here that you shall be my witnesses. Now we know this from a court of law. A number of years ago, we were driving on this country road. As we're driving, there's a guy riding his longboard right in the middle of the road. No shoulders, nothing. He's just going in the middle. Well, praise God, we saw him. We slowed down and he just went past us. And we're coming back a few minutes later and they stopped the traffic an oncoming car did not see him, hit him. Now, we stopped. I gave my name because I sort of witnessed part of it at least. Later on, whether there was a lawsuit or something, they called me and, you know, they're asking you because you witnessed at least a part of it. And they're asking you simple questions. Hey, what did you see? What did you witness? What did you hear? What did you think at that time? Now, when I went there, I didn't have to make up a story. 
I didn't have to come up with anything. All they're simply asking me, hey, you witnessed something. Now tell us what happened. Now in this case, when Jesus says here, you shall be my witnesses, in the book of Acts, Jesus' followers are presented as witnesses. Their job is not to do anything, is not to accomplish anything, but rather it is to provide a testimony of what they had seen and what they had heard. That was their job. When Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses, you are going to provide a testimony to the world about me. Apostle John, who was present at the time when Jesus gave this command, wrote the following words in 1 John chapter 1. And you remember these words. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify, same word, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. This word to testify is exactly what Jesus says you will do. And John says what we are doing, we are providing a testimony as to who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And you need to respond to that. Their primary job, the primary job of a witness is to accurately relate to others what he has seen and heard. Now what is their message what are they supposed to testify to? It is the person of Jesus Christ and primarily the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you look at the same chapter, skip down to verse 22, 122. In 122, they're choosing a replacement for Judas to add to the 12. And listen how Peter defines the mission of the apostles. At the end of verse 22, he says, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Witness with us of his resurrection. You have seen the risen Christ and you're going to stand before the people and you're going to testify before them concerning who Christ is. Now, witness involves speaking. You have to speak. You have to give testimony. You show up to court, they put you on the stand and you have to provide your testimony. Now, it is true that your conduct speaks. And if your conduct doesn't match your words, that's a problem. But just having a good conduct as you're preaching, it's not good enough. Because if we just depend on our conduct, I guarantee you that you have a Mormon neighbor who's better than you. He might be a better witness for Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus, but he might act better. So witness involves speaking. You've heard a slogan that says, listen, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. And one author said, this slogan makes as much sense as saying, feed the starving. If necessary, use food. You see, if you're going to be a witness, you have to present the gospel. You have to speak of Jesus. Yes, your life has to back up your message, but you have to speak in one way. Now notice whose witnesses they will be. He says, you shall be my witnesses. Notice there are no conditions attached to the statement. There is no uncertainty in the statement. He says, you shall be my, this is a statement of fact. You didn't have to do anything to become a witness, nothing. He's just saying, you shall be my witnesses. Which is to say that if you are a believer, you are a witness for Jesus. The question is not whether you are a witness. The question is, what kind of witness are you? So you might be a good witness or you might be a bad witness. But he's saying here that you shall be my witness. 
witnesses. You see, as I said earlier, the job of a witness is to tell others about an event, person, or circumstances. Jesus is saying that you are going to tell others about me. You see, our mission is straightforward. We're not defending certain doctrines. We're not just defending certain ideas that were put in the book thousands of years ago. No, he's saying you are presenting Christ. You are a witness to Christ. Your life and your words must be a testimony as to who Christ is and what Christ has done. That he lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and he is the savior of the world. And there is no salvation in anyone else but Jesus Christ. Now in case you think I'm simplifying this way too much and this is a lot more complicated. What we need to do is we need to run through the book of Acts. And we'll see whether Jesus' words that he gives here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, whether they hold true through the rest of the book. Acts chapter 1, 22, we already saw that the replacement for the apostle is going to be a witness of Jesus Christ. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching his first New Testament sermon. And in the sermon in verse 32, he says, This Jesus, God raised up again, to which... We are all what? Witnesses. We saw risen Christ. And that's why I testify about him right now. Go to Acts chapter 3. Peter is preaching his second sermon. In verse 14 he says, But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. A fact to which we are witnesses. In Acts chapter 5. Jewish council forbids the apostles to speak of the name of Christ. And Peter responds by saying in verse 29, he says, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. Whom God has given to those who obey him. Fast forward to Acts chapter 10. Peter travels to Cornelius' house. He stands before Gentiles and he says in verse 38. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach the people. And solemnly to testify, same word for witness. That this is the one who has been appointed by God as a judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sin. We're in Acts chapter 10. And so far the pattern holds true. Go to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11 the church is scattered. And what were they doing? In verse 20 we read that these were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Enoch, and they began to 
began speaking to the Greeks and preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all they were doing. They were given testimony as to who Christ is and what Christ did and how you need to respond to that. Acts chapter 13. Paul is now on the missionary journey. Paul is not even one of the apostles, original apostles. And in Acts chapter 13, he is in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And in verse 30 we read, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. When Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9, he recounts his conversion a number of times in the book of Acts. And he does that in Acts chapter 22. If you go to Acts chapter 22, listen to one what Ananias said to him when he came to lay his hands on him so that he would receive his sight. Ananias comes and he said, the God of, uh, verse um, uh, 14 of chapter 22, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a, what? A witness for him to all men of what you have seen and what you heard. A few verses down, Paul recounts Acts chapter 7. And he calls Stephen as a witness in that 22:20. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving. Another time Paul gives his testimony in Acts chapter 26. He's standing before King Agrippa and he recounts the words that Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus. He said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appointed you to appoint, appoint I have appointed you to appoint you appear to you, to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. Entire book of Acts, from the very beginning, he makes this promise. And then we have one after another, one after another, simply testifying as to who Jesus is. These people were witnesses. Now, I find this to be very encouraging. Listen, you don't need a degree. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to read 100 books. All you need to do is you need to know Jesus. If you met Jesus, you have enough information to tell someone else about Jesus. I mean, this verse is so encouraging because this verse says that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, if you are a believer, you know enough information to share with somebody. Why? Because if you're a believer, you know enough about Jesus. If you know enough about Jesus to be saved, you know enough about Jesus to tell someone else what they need to do to get saved, right? So this verse is so encouraging. It says, listen, all you need to do is you need to open your mouth and speak about Jesus. And notice when we oftentimes think about testimony, people think, oh, you know, I, I don't have a great testimony. I, I mean, I got saved when I was seven. And I mean, what am I going to tell people? Listen, you're not telling people about yourself. You're telling people about Jesus. Your testimony is not, a, oh, I was this bad and this bad. And then I got saved, you know. No. You don't exalt what you were in the past. No matter what you were, you were on your way to hell. 
And Jesus saved you. And so you're testifying about Jesus, that Jesus is the one who saves people no matter who you are, whether you are a good Mormon kid or whether you're murdered on death row. No matter what you are, you are given testimony that Jesus came to save. Now think about it. If we as a church say, adopt a project in Africa. We say we're going to find a village in Africa that doesn't have clean water. We're going to collect money here, and we're going to go to Africa, and we're going to dig a well for them. Now, clean water is absolutely necessary. You don't have clean water. You have disease. You have kids dying. And if we were to do that, are we going to alter lives of people in that village? Absolutely. I mean, some kids are not going to die. Some of the diseases that people are struggling with because they're drinking dirty water will go away. Some people will live longer. Some people will have jobs to maintain the well. And in the short run, we will definitely affect their lives. But you know, if we simply stop there, we're just stirring some sugar into the bitter coffee of life for them. Because whether you die at two or you die at a hundred or two, you got eternity before you. So we can make your life a little bit more comfortable here and now. But if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't trust in Jesus, if you don't repent, and if you don't place your faith in Jesus as the only Savior, listen, you got eternity separated from God. So your job and our job as a mission, should we dig wells? Well, yeah, if that's a means to share the gospel, sure, no problem. But that's not our greatest goal. That's not our greatest desire just to make people more comfortable in this life. Listen, you have something that you can change someone's eternity. If you are a witness, and if you speak to someone the gospel, and if you share Jesus with them, listen, you've changed their life for eternity. Two trillion years from now, somebody's going to come up to you and say, hey, man, thanks, bro, for sharing the gospel with me in that Uber ride or at work or somewhere else. Because I heard the gospel from you and I got saved. And, I mean, all of us, I hope, want to live lives that will count, not only for here and now, but for eternity. And Jesus is saying here, you have something that can change traje trajectory of people's life. Preach the gospel. And all you have to do is simple. You give testimony concerning Christ. Not testimony concerning you. Testimony concerning Christ. And all of us can do that. In whatever way, in whatever fashion, all of us can engage in this. The purpose of missions is to introduce people to Jesus and let him do the rest. That's the purpose of mission. All you have to do is you have to be a witness. So we saw the peoples, people of missions. We have examined the purpose of missions. Let's look thirdly at the power for missions. Now, how many of you ever felt inadequate for a task? You are assigned the project and you're like, come on, man, I, I, I can't do that. You give an assignment at work and you're like, I don't have enough brain power to finish that. You take a test and you're looking at it and you're like, I, I, I don't know any of these questions or answers to these questions. And you're like, I, I can't do this. Now, you can listen to this, and when Jesus said, hey, you shall be my witnesses, and it's just a fact that you'll be my witnesses. And some of us might say, he's like, but, but I, I can't do it. I can't. And you know, the good news is, you're right. You can't. And I can't. 
That's why we have this verse. And that's when Jesus starts it and says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Like I said, when this mission is outlined in this verse, it's given to the 11 disciples. 11 disciples are going to turn the world upside down. 11 disciples? Really? Peter? Peter, the guy who a couple of weeks ago just publicly denied Jesus before a servant girl? You have James and John who were just a month ago were arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Who's going to get the highest position in the kingdom? These guys? Doubting Thomas? Yeah, I'd pick him on my team, right? The guys who after Jesus' resurrection are locked up in the room because they're afraid of authorities that they're going to come and get him? You mean these guys are going to go and they're going to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth? Really? I mean, Jesus, you, you probably should have gone somewhere else and picked. No. You see, the key to this is not the guys who are going to go out. It is the power that resides in those guys. It is Jesus who has commanded these guys. And it's the spirit of God. And the question that we're answering here is, how are they supposed to do this? The same question we're asking for ourselves. Listen, how am I supposed to do this? I don't have those abilities. I don't have those skills. How are you supposed to do that? And the answer is right here. But before we look at this verse, I want you to go back to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is the end of the first volume that Luke is writing. And then in Acts chapter 1, he picks up right where he left off. And just before he gives us Acts chapter 1, Luke writes this in verse 46 of chapter 24. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in the name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. Kind of sounds like Acts chapter 1, right? You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Notice his first command. Listen, don't go anywhere and don't do anything before you get the power. Which is to tell us that on your own, you can do it. Disciples had no power to do it. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, notice it says you will receive power. It's a future tense. They didn't have the power yet. They, they couldn't go yet. In fact, if Jesus went up to heaven 40 days after the ascension, day of Pentecost didn't happen until 50 days after ascension. So for next 10 days, they were sitting around and praying and hanging out with the church. The church didn't exist back then, but the 120 people that were believers. That's what they were doing. They weren't supposed to go anywhere, and they weren't supposed to do anything. Because why? Because they didn't have power to do it. They couldn't do it on their own. And so Jesus is saying here that this will only happen when the Holy Spirit will come. And when the Holy Spirit will come, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now it's interesting if you look at verse 8 again. The first word in this word is what? The first word is but. Well, why is it there? Because this verse is in contrast to verse 7. In verse 7, disciples are asking Jesus, Hey, is it, is it this time? Is it time for us to establish the kingdom? Is it the times when you're going to establish the kingdom? And Jesus says, listen, that's not what you're supposed to be worrying about. That's not your job. I'm going to establish the kingdom. 
This is not what you're supposed to worry about. What you're supposed to worry about is that you shall be my witnesses, which is to tell us that there are certain things that we're supposed to worry about, and there are other things that we should not worry about. And the time when the kingdom is going to be established, bringing kingdom establishment, that's not your job. That's what Jesus is going to do. What you need to do, he says, but you shall be my witnesses. When? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Notice that there are no conditions placed on this statement. No, he says you will receive. He doesn't say, oh, you have to do something for this to happen. Or there, you have to meet certain criteria. No. It's a promise. He's simply saying that on the day of Pentecost, this is what's going to happen. You will receive power. Now, if we consider the work of the Holy Spirit in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament as distinct from the Old Testament, there are many things that we could say, but let me just highlight a few things. If you think about the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament... The main distinction you can say that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would descend upon certain individual for a particular task. And when that task was finished, the Holy Spirit would leave. The major distinction between the Old Testament and New Testament is that the Holy Spirit did not reside in the believers. There are a few exceptions to that. But in general, people as a whole, the people of God, did not have the Holy Spirit. Now, we see that in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit would come, he would give certain ability to people to accomplish the task that he assigned to them. For example, Exodus chapter 35. In Exodus chapter 35, God is commanding Moses to build a tabernacle. And when they're going to build a tabernacle, they're going to build all those elaborate furniture and the clothes and everything else. And the question is, how are they going to pull it off? This is what God says, or Moses said to people. Exodus 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And listen to this phrase. And he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and all the craftsmanship. To make designs for the working in gold and in silver and in bronze and then the cutting of stones for a setting and the carving of wood so as to perform every inventive work. Notice God says, I'm going to set this guy apart. I'm going to give my spirit to him who will enable him to accomplish the task that I assign to him. Now, Basil was one guy. He was the director. Yes, there were a bunch of guys helping him, but he was overseeing the project and he was doing explicitly because the Spirit of God was working through him. Now, this was not the case for all the believers. In fact, there were certain cases when the Holy Spirit would come and then the Holy Spirit would leave. In Psalm 51, when David repents of his great sin with Bathsheba, you remember his prayer when he says, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Why is he praying that? Because he saw what happened to Saul. When the Holy Spirit departed from him. And David is praying, Lord, don't take Holy Spirit from me. You and I don't have to pray this prayer. Because New Testament says that if God given you Holy Spirit, you are sealed for the day of redemption. He is never going to leave you. That's the distinction between the Old Testament and the New. Now there's another interesting passage in the Old Testament from which we learn that not everyone had the Holy Spirit. In Numbers chapter 11... We read of two men, listen to this account, Number, Numbers eleven twenty six, 26. But two men had remained in the camp, 
And the name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Mira. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Ildad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? And listen, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses says, listen, I wish that the Spirit of God would come and reside upon all of the people in the camp. That's what I want. That's what he, that's what he hoped for. That's what he desired. And we come to the New Testament. And we come to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus says what Moses hoped for, what Moses wished for in the Old Testament, is going to become reality in the New Testament. In the New Testament, if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit who resides in you. In this case, because this is a transitional period in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, the church does not exist. 120 that are mentioned in Acts chapter 1, they're believers. But because the church has not yet, did not yet exist, because the church is born in Acts chapter 2, they are believers, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. Now in Acts chapter 2, they will receive the Holy Spirit. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, when the church is born, anyone who is added to the church immediately has the Holy Spirit. So all the believers in the New Testament have the Holy Spirit. This is the reality that Jesus speaks here. Jesus is saying here, listen, you will be my witnesses because my spirit will reside in you. And my spirit will give you power, will give you ability, will give you ability to do what you cannot do on your own. So if you're feeling like, well, but, but I can't do this, that's right. You can't do this, but you have someone who lives on the inside of you who is able to do this and who desires to do this. Think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Christ. That's what he does. That's what he exists. That's, what, that's his mission here on earth. He will magnify Christ, Gospel of John. Now, Holy Spirit resides in you, and his mission is exactly the same is to exalt the name of Christ. That's why Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit resides in you, then and only then you will be my witnesses. You see, believers are effective witnesses not because of who they are, not because of their great testimony, but it is because the Spirit of God works through them. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, or said this. He says, the power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, man would be converters of soul. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of man. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give the power to convert souls. The reason why we can be effective witnesses is because the Spirit of God gives the power of God to bring about conversion of sinners. How do people get saved? People get saved when you preach the gospel to them. When you preach to them the word of Christ. And then the Spirit of God takes the word of God and he brings it to the dead heart and he regenerates the dead heart and causes it to come to life. 
When he causes it to come to life, people have their eyes open and they see the glory of Christ and they see the sinfulness of their own sin and they fall down and worship God. If it was not for the Spirit of God, you can be as eloquent as you can be. You can give great testimonies and great stories. You're talking to dead men and dead men do not respond. If you don't know that, go to a cemetery and try. That's exactly how it is in the spiritual life. In a spiritual life, only when the Spirit of God causes the unregenerate person to be born again, only then they can believe. And your testimony and my testimony can be effective because we have the Spirit of God. That's the power that Christ gives to us. So if you feel inadequate to preach the gospel, good. If you feel adequate because you think you can do it, something's wrong. But on the other hand, this is a great encouragement. And no matter who you are, no matter what level of education you have, no matter what, if you just open your mouth and you rely on the power of Christ to be witness, God will use that. Think about Peter. Peter who just denied Christ before a servant girl. And you just flip a page. It's been a month. And the same Peter stands before Sanhedrin and he says, listen, you nail him to the cross. To a crowd of people. Peter, you nail him to the cross. In his second sermon, chapter 313, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, but you disowned the Holy One. In chapter 4, verse 10, whom you crucified. Peter, what happened to you? Holy Spirit happened. That's what happened. Before that, Peter was on his own. But now when the Holy Spirit has empowered him, he's able to stand before the crowd and say, I don't care what you guys think about me. I'm going to speak about Jesus. And you want to put me in prison? No, I got to listen to Jesus more than you guys. So better repent. Peter. Peter. If you can use Peter, this is an encouragement for all of us that, again, it is not you. It's the Spirit. So who are the people of missions? We are. What is the purpose of missions? It is to witness Christ. How are we supposed to do it? In reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, let's consider the plan for missions. Jesus says here, you shall be my witnesses. And then he gives four locations. He says both in Jerusalem and in old Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. These locations can be mapped out in concentric circles. The first one, he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, this is where they are right now. This is their home base. In Luke 24, he says, hey, don't go anywhere because this is where you're going to start. This is where everything took place. This is where Jesus was crucified. This is where Jesus rose from the dead. And he says, you are going to stay here when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is where you're going to be my witnesses. The easiest place to witness is at home, right? Wrong. Because everybody knows you, right? But notice that's where Jesus starts. Jesus doesn't say to them, hey, go as far as you can where no one knows you and start speaking about it. No. He says, you stay here and you're going to testify about Jesus right here. It's the center of activity. See, before you go anywhere and become anyone, you got to be right here. Someone said that there is no transformation by aviation. You don't get on the plane and all of a sudden you become this super duper missionary. No. 
He says, you are going to be my witnesses where? Right here in Jerusalem. Then he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea. What is the relationship between Jerusalem and Judea? That's like saying in modern terms that you're going to be my witnesses in Sacramento. And then you're going to be my witnesses in California. Right? Judea, Jerusalem belongs to Judea. And he says, it's a relationship between a city and a state. It's Jewish territory. And up until Acts chapter 8, this has been fulfilled. Now, this word both is interesting. He says, you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. And we assume when we read both, that has two things. But no, the word that's translated both, it can introduce the list of more than two things. And in this case, we have four. And it's important because he's saying here that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then some of you are going to stay in Jerusalem and some of you are going to travel farther. And you're going to be my witnesses in Judea. And then some of you are going to stay in Judea and others are going to travel farther. And you're going to be my witnesses. And so as the church spreads, as the gospel spreads, there are going to be people everywhere bearing testimony as to who Jesus Christ is. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, at home, in Judea. Third place he mentions, you're going to be my witnesses in Samaria. Samaria? The 11 loved Samaria, right? That's where they booked their vacations. <laughs> These guys were Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. And Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Samaria. People whom you don't like, people whom you despise. You're going to stand there and you're going to preach the gospel. And finally, to the remotest parts of the earth, that's anywhere beyond Samaria. Anywhere beyond Samaria. Was this plan fulfilled in the book of Acts? Absolutely. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And verse 5 says, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Acts chapter 2, there is a sermon in Jerusalem and tons of people repent. They were witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem. The second place he says, you're going to be my witnesses where? In Judea. Look at it. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says Saul was in hardly agreement with putting him to death. And on that day there, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea. The promise that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1 happened exactly the way Jesus said it. A persecution came and the church scattered. When the church scattered they began to preach the gospel in the state if you will. They preached the gospel in Judea. Third place, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria. Same chapter, verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Great conversion happened in Samaria because Jesus says this is what's going to happen. And this is exactly what happened. In Acts chapter 10, you come to Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 28, Paul is in Rome preaching and speaking of the kingdom of God. Did what Jesus say happen exactly the way it happened? Absolutely. What he promised took place exactly the way he said it. Why? Because the church was faithful to its calling to represent Jesus. Now notice in the midst of all this, they all play different functions. Everyone plays different function. Somebody prays, somebody supports, somebody goes, someone stays. And you can play a different function, but we have one mission. And what our one mission is to make Jesus known, whether in Sacramento or in the world. 
This is your goal. And you can support it in different ways and you can find a place where you fit into that mission. But one way or another, your life must be consumed with this. This is what you live for. You live to make Jesus known. As we draw our time to the end, I hope you realize that this is not just a program for select few in the church. This is a command and this is what we all are. The thing is that we all are witnesses. But it just can be that many of us are bad witnesses. It's a witness that you wouldn't put on the stand, right? But Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to be my witness. And so this is an encouragement for all of us, that all of us have capacity and have ability, not because of ourselves, but because of the presence of the Holy Spirit to change someone else's life for eternity. Ask yourself, am I an effective witness for Jesus. If not, what do I need to change so that I would become an effective messenger and witness for Jesus? I'm sure there are some here who are not even saved. I mean, we can talk about preaching Jesus without preaching Jesus, right? The message of the gospel is that this Jesus that we are preaching is the one who came into the world to save sinners. Is the one who lived the perfect life. That's what the gospel records. He lived the perfect life. He suffered. He bled. He died. He rose from the dead for the salvation of sinners. And this is the Jesus who desires to save every single one of us. He desires to call you to repentance if you still don't believe. He desires to call your neighbors and he desires to use you to bring them to repentance. So maybe you are saying here, listen... I'm not going to go anywhere and tell anybody because I myself don't even believe this. Well, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Repent. Trust in Christ. And when you trust in Christ, you already know what you're supposed to do. You know what you're supposed to do because God saved you. And God left you here so that you would become his witness. So that the testimony that you give concerning Christ would bring many to repentance. And as we consider the mission of our church, where are we going to be involved? How are we going to participate? What activity are we going to do? Listen, bottom line is we have to witness for Jesus. And it starts at home. And it starts right here. And whatever ministry that God will give to each one of us, whatever capacity, whatever function we will fulfill, we will do it by the Spirit of God. But it starts for us, for each one of us, realizing that, hey, I have been commissioned. I am a witness. But what kind of witness Am I? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that your word is clear, that your power is available, that your spirit resides in us, and that there are many unconverted around us. And we ask you that you would use us, each one of us, that you would grant to us opportunity to bear witness to Jesus, to present Christ, to present who he is and what he did, so that many would be saved by the witness of this church. Not for our glory, but for the name of Christ, because that is what you have commissioned us to do. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.